El Fanboy, Episode 6. Everybody, what's up? What's up? It's Mario Francisco Robles, MFR, here with you with the sixth episode of the El Fanboy Podcast. What's going on, guys and gals? It's been one hell of a week for yours, truly. I don't know if uh, you noticed, but last week I made my IGN debut. Uh, I did a a little piece there about the Matrix reboot, which we're going to discuss in great detail a little later today. Um, And that was just a thrill. I've been reading IGN for like 15, 16 years now. And uh, to finally have an article put up there and to see like it jumped up to like 200 comments within like an hour. uh, That was just crazy to watch. And um, so that was a thrill. And uh, behind the scenes here, I've just been working on lining up some guests. You guys know I have Marvelous Dave coming on. Uh, I'm also working on making some guest spots on other podcasts, so stay tuned for that. Also working on ramping up the overall production value here on uh, the El Fanboy podcast. I got some some stuff I'm working on that I, I want to do just to kind of spruce the show up for you, make it stand out a little more, and put a little more of my personality into it. So um, keep an eye out for that as well. Um, Speaking of which, since I am putting all kinds of effort into this, and some of you have asked about a Patreon account, just a quick update on that is, you know, I am going to be setting that up hopefully by the end of this week. Uh, the, The delay has been trying to put together a good enough video to capture people's imaginations and, and make them want to sort of contribute to the cause. Because I, I have plenty I want to do, and Lord knows my wife looks at me like I'm crazy that I do all this for free, and that I spend so many hours trying to uh, basically grow the Elf Fanboy brand, and I have these plans to make the website bigger and better and give you guys more content there. I've got the YouTube channel, and obviously I have this, my main bread and butter here, the Elf Fanboy podcast. So I, you know, I have a lot of content, a lot of stuff I want to share with you. And uh, I guess it's only fair that I, I at least give you guys the opportunity to uh, put some money back in my pocket for it, since, uh, you know, I do have a couple kids and, you know, life ain't cheap, especially living in New York. So I'll keep you posted on the Patreon account, um, but enough on that. Uh, also, you know, last week I helped my grandfather record something for a Mexican film project. I've mentioned before that my whole freaking family is a bunch of actors and performers that I can't seem to turn around and not have some sort of uh, performance thing going on around me. And I helped to record something. And what's, what's, what's pretty cool about that is now it sounds like the, the folks behind the project want to fly he and I, all expenses paid, down to Mexico in a couple weeks. So we may have an El Fanboy podcast record down in Mexico. I will keep you guys posted about that. But yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's a crazy time to be alive. And uh, I hope everyone else is having a good time out there and, and, and making the most of your opportunities and hustling and putting your talents to good use because, uh, well, that's what it's all about, not squandering the opportunities we have, right? Um, in terms of what I've just been doing just in my downtime, you know, I've been playing lots of Zelda, you know, Zelda Breath of the Wild 
Uh, yeah, I don't have a Nintendo Switch. I have the Wii U that I dug out, and I've been playing lots of Legend of Zelda. And it's been great. It's been a great thing for me, because it's been a while since I've played a game in general, but it's also been a while since I've played a game that was like immersive, that really sort of took me someplace. And right now with where I'm at, especially with how sort of abruptly things shifted for me last month, um, you know, kind of having like a palate cleanser is important. And Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is a perfect palate cleanser because it's like, it's all these open spaces and you have this complete freedom. There's no linear, there's no, there's nothing linear about it where you're sort of forced to do a, before you can go to B or before you can go to C. Um, and kind of having that open world freedom and there's very little music. It's very just, it's, it's almost like meditating. When I, when, I, when I get to go visit Hyrule at the end of a long day for like an hour or two, it's just a great sort of way to sort of come down from, from a long day and kind of just get lost in this whole other fictional world. And... I'm just loving the hell out of it. And if you guys are, are Zelda fans out there um, and you happen to have an old Wii U lying around, I would totally suggest dusting it off and buying the game because uh, while I don't think there's any real reason to get the Nintendo Switch just yet, uh, you can get Zelda for you know pretty much the same experience for the Wii U. And I think, uh, I think people owe it to themselves. It's quite a phenomenal experience. Um, and speaking of which, you know, since I, men since I mentioned that, you know, uh, last month, you know, things got a little hairy for me, as you guys know, um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pissed off. Uh, my, my former employers, you know, fuck those people, you know, um, it, it, it came up again for me last week that, you know, they, they took my name off of over 3000 articles that I wrote for that site, all of them, every article I've ever written now just says this generic uh, authorship. It doesn't say my name. It just basically says that it was authored by the site itself. And I mean, hey, you know, they are, it's their right. They own everything. They made me sign something that basically gives them the ownership of what I created for them. But it's, it's pretty infuriating. You know, you, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. And it's petty and it's ridiculous. And it could actually hurt me too, because as I go through this now and I try to apply to other writing positions and, and try to present a portfolio, I can no longer just give them a link that shows them, well, here's 3,000 plus articles that I wrote for several years for this site, because now that link just brings them to something that looks generic. And I have to explain to those people, yes, it says this generic name, but it was me. And I have to prove that to people now. And it hurts my ability to try to score other jobs in this in this world, in this little subgenre of the world. And it's just it's it's so ridiculous and unnecessary, especially because they didn't even have the balls. To this day, I don't know why I was let go. Um, so like the whole situation, I just fuck those people, and I can't stress up upon you guys enough. Go elsewhere for your fanboy news, because those people, the people who run it, not not the people who work there, not my former co-host on the other show. He's my boy still. I love that kid. He's a good, good guy. But the people who own that place are fucking vile, vile people. So 
Ugh, anyway, okay. I'm sorry, enough of the personal stuff. I know you guys don't come here for the personal stuff. So we're going to get into the news of the week. There is so much to cover. So sorry for taking up your time with that other stuff. Um, First things first. Last week, I asked a question of the week that centered on the idea that now that the DCEU is open to making rated R movies, which Suicide Squad so totally should have been, uh, now that they're open to making rated R movies, what would you think about Batman being rated R? Considering of all of the main flagship characters, his is the one that has the mythology that could lend itself towards an R-rated movie, especially with some of those crazy villains he has and the violent way in which he was born, you know, created by watching his parents die, you know, all that, you know, you could definitely make a case that there should be a rated R Batman movie. Uh, While I personally wouldn't want them to do that, um, I can see them wanting to do it. So I wanted to see what you, what you guys out there thought. Um, Tavo Borrego tweeted in, uh, by the way, it's all my regulars. It's, 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 it's Tavo, Aaron, Chris, um, you know, guys, I, I would love to hear from some more of you out there. I love hearing from my boys. I will never discount that, but I want to hear from more of you. So please take the time, tweet at me, go on the uh, MFR Facebook. I want to hear, I want to hear from all of you because I know that there's more than just a handful of you listening to this. So please, when I guys, when I ask you the question of the week later today, later on this episode, just give me an answer. I want to hear from you, but Let's hear from my, from my boys, my, my intimate circle here. Uh, Tavo Borrego said, I am torn, but I believe that Batman should be rated R depending on the story. If it's an Arkham Asylum story, it should be an R. That was Tavo. Aaron Varola said, fuck that noise. Batman should stay PG-13. The Dark Knight was as close to a rated R as it gets. He shouldn't be killing, period. Well, the killing thing is, I guess, a separate side note. But uh, Aaron agrees with me that Batman, you know, you don't need to go rated R to tell a great, complex, interesting Batman story. Uh, Mr. Chris Lasanti said, I would be happy with a great Batman movie that is true to the character, regardless of the rating. Batman is such a versatile character that he can be successfully adapted in many different ways. Very well put, Chris. Yeah. Um, you know, so it sounds like, you know, he it doesn't matter if it's rated R or PG-13 or whatever. As long as the story's good and it does, it does the Batman mythos justice, you know, go for it. Um, so thank you for you guys who, who chimed in on my question of the week. Um, and now we're going to go to our next order of business, the first one that we tend to start with, which is the box office. So what did I fucking tell you guys? I told you last week, I said, I've been telling you for like a month that Beauty and the Beast is going to be a beast. And boy, oh boy, was did I turn out right about that. While the projections originally were talking about maybe it having a, a $120 million weekend at some point, now it's, it's, it, the opening weekend has come and gone. It made $174.75 million, uh, broke all kinds of records. It's, uh, 
it's just it's doing unbelievable. I actually tried to get tickets this weekend. My my wife wanted to go out with the kids and go catch it, and uh, she put me in charge of finding tickets, and we couldn't come up with anything. Everything was sold out, or it was like the 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 only seats left are like scattered around the theater, or you have to sit in the front row, and I don't do that. I'm that fuck that noise. I don't. I, I will. I will sooner wait a week before going to sit in the front row and sit there staring up at the ceiling to try to see the screen. So, um, yeah, it did unbelievable. It did. You know that that's just an astronomical number, and it's 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 on a pace to to break even more records as we go along here. Um, and just sort of you know, there's lots of subplots in the in the box office this week. So I'm also gonna you know tackle the subplots a little bit. Uh, I know a couple weeks ago I mentioned I, I touched on the controversy about the gay moment in Beauty and the Beast. And first of all, look at that. It doesn't look like that controversy or the little boycott that was going on in certain areas, the censorship, the conservatives freaking out about it. It doesn't look like that really did anything, did it, because uh, the movie itself did phenomenally well, and it's even, you know, it, it's doing nice things internationally, too, in terms of countries that were threatening to, like, not run it unless they censored the film are all backing down. You know, Russia agreed to show the film, but they kind of gave it a, a, a restrictive almost like rated R type rating over there, but they are going to release the film unedited. And there's also uh, in Malaysia, which is a very, um, you know, Muslim heavy country where, you know, uh, homosexuality is, is, is a huge, huge no, no. Uh, They ultimately agreed to also show the film unedited. So, and we are with a PG 13 rating. So, um, you know, so just good for them. It looks like Disney's, you know, sticking to their guns here and they're, you know, they're, they're sending out the film as is, and they're not being reactionary or, or cowardly and and trying to come up with an alternate cut of the film that doesn't include that quote unquote gay moment. I haven't seen the movie yet, so I can't say, uh, you know, with any degree of, of accuracy, whether or not the moment in the film requires all of this controversy and even all of this conversation. I should be able to comment on it next week because I'm going to try to see Beauty and the Beast this week with my family. Um, Next up on the list is Kong Skull Island, which uh, dropped 54%, which isn't bad for a big budget movie like this, uh, with a $27.8 million haul bringing its domestic cum to 109.1 million after two weeks. Um, I don't have a hell of a lot to say there. I, I have a feeling that, you know, Warner Brothers does have a tendency to overspend on movies. And I, I do worry about what the profit margin is going to look like for Kong Skull Island. Um, I, you know, as you guys saw in my YouTube review, uh, I really enjoyed the film. You know, Grant, I gave it a B minus, but I still thought it was an enjoyable movie. You know, I thought it was fun. I thought it had a lot working for it, and it definitely got me a hell of a lot more excited for this shared monster universe than Godzilla did. So I, I hope you know, I, I hope it hangs in there. Um, but yeah, so yeah, twenty seven point eight mil for Kong Skull Island, and number three is Logan. Logan made seventeen point eight million dollars. It dropped fifty three percent. It's now at one hundred eighty four point three million dollars domestically after three weeks. 
But one thing that is pretty cool that's working for Logan is the fact that it, you know, it has passed $500 million globally. So that's a hell of a benchmark for it to, you know, to, for it to have crossed. Um, you know, I'm still somewhat saddened by the fact that the film isn't doing more like Deadpool numbers. Uh, I was really hoping that, you know, a film of this caliber that has done so well that, uh, you know, that it would, that it would just, you know, uh, do a little better in this. Sorry if I sound a little, I'm trying to read, I'm trying to read and speak to you at the same time. Just trying to look, I'm looking over the post here about how, you know, how, how it did and how it crossed the 500 benchmark. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Logan, if you guys haven't seen it yet, it's totally worth your time. It's totally worth, you know, all the attention that those of us who've seen it have been, have been giving to it. So good for them that it's crossed 500 mil. I'm still sort of bummed that it's not doing better than that. Uh, rounding out the top five, you've got Get Out, which is still in there. Dropped 35% to 13.4 mil. And you've got The Shack, which dropped 40% for 6 million. That's quite a disparity, right? You know, number one made 175 million bucks. Number five made 6 million bucks. So people really, really loved uh, these Disney blockbusters. And uh, now we're going to sort of venture, and venture into something that I, I don't tend to touch on really, like conspiracies and all this sort of shit. But I just, I guess I find it notable the way the media tends to cover Disney. When it tends to cover Disney, it, 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 everything seems to be fairly rose-colored and encouraging and supportive. Like right now, I'm looking at a Deadline article about the box office, and in talking about it, there's a quote here that I've highlighted that says, given the great reviews, yada, 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 and they go on to say how it could continue to you know, do well. Um, listen, it doesn't have great reviews. It doesn't have bad reviews, but if you go on Rotten Tomatoes right now, it's only got a 70%. That, you know, it's like, that's a passable movie. That's less than Kong Skull Island. You know, that's, it's, it's a little bit better than that Before I Fall that came out. You know, it's like, it, it, this film doesn't have great reviews. It's got pretty good reviews. And that point kind of gets hammered even further, though, with the way things are sort of coddled for Disney, which is, if you look at the critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, which is where whoever runs Rotten Tomatoes, they tend to sort of look over all the reviews and come up with just a mini little blurb that summarizes what people are saying about the film. Here's what the critics' consensus reads. With an enchanting cast, beautifully crafted songs, and a painterly eye for detail, Beauty and the Beast offers a faithful yet fresh retelling that honors its beloved source material. Does that sound to you like a movie that's only got 70%? It sounds like whoever crafted this critic's consensus wants to make the film sound phenomenal when the reviews that it's in theory trying to summarize are warning you that the film has plenty of flaws. And, just to, and, and the reason that that's interesting to me um, is that like even Kong Skull Island, which uh, is actually rated higher, it has a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics' consensus says, 
Offering exhilarating eye candy, solid acting, and a fast-paced story, Kong Skull Island earns its spot in the movie Monsters Mythos without ever matching up to the classic original. So you see that at the end, they kind of have to add that slightly little passive-aggressive comment. That yes, it's good, but it, you know, this, it definitely pales in comparison to the original. And it's like, all right, I understand. You know, the, the film had its flaws, and yeah, it definitely doesn't compare to the original. But it, you know, this one actually touches on the negativity. Meanwhile, it's a 78% movie, and it's a Warner Brothers movie. Then you go over to the Disney movie, which is a 70%, and it sounds like they're talking about an all-time classic. And, you know, and if you look around at other you know, similar movies that have had much better reviews than Beauty and the Beast, they tend to include a little bit of negative, a little bit of something that warns you, that, that explains why it's in the 70s or even in the 80s instead of being in the 90s. I find it incredibly interesting that Beauty and the Beast only has a very tepid 70%, but you got Deadline referring to the great reviews, and you have you know this critic's consensus that makes it sound like this might be some all-time classic Disney movie. So I'm just, you know, that sort of stuff is intriguing to me. And if I'm someone who wants to make the case that Rotten Tomatoes has some sort of bias and that the media really is pro-Disney, um, you know... Th- if I'm someone like that, which I'm not typically, this sort of stuff would definitely sort of tickle, you know, scratch that itch a little bit and get me wondering, why is it that these Disney movies get treated with these sort of kids' gloves? 70% is not a great movie. So, anywho, I think I've uh, I, I, I've gone far enough down that little rabbit hole. I'll kind of let you guys discuss what you think of that and what you make of that. Um and now we're going to move on to our next thing. Since I, you know, since I, this is just a little quick news bite. Since I touched on the gay controversy in Beauty and the Beast, I also would like to touch on the fact that Power Rangers. Uh, we found out recently that the Power Rangers reboot will feature the big screen's first openly gay superhero character. Granted, you know, Power Rangers. We probably don't think of them in the traditional superhero sense, like Marvel or DC. Uh, but still, Power Rangers are, you know, superheroes. And there's apparently a key sequence in the film that reveals that Trini, who's played by Becky G, uh, is a lesbian. You know, she's having uh, girlfriend problems in a scene, uh, according to the director. And he says that the scene itself is pivotal. Here's his quote. He said, for Trini, really, she's questioning a lot about who she is. She hasn't fully figured it out yet. I think that's what's great about that scene and what that, and what that scene propels for the rest of the movie is, that's okay. The movie is saying, that's okay. And all of the kids have to own who they are and find their tribe. Uh, that's from director Dean Israelite, who's behind this reboot. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Brandon over at the Medium Popcorn Podcast is going to have something to say about that. I, I know he uh, has the hots for 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 Becky G and Trini, and uh, I wonder what he thinks about Trini being uh, lesbian over there. But uh, either way, pretty cool that they're that they're doing that. Uh, I'm actually going to see the movie tonight. I'm attending a press screening of Power Rangers, and uh, this is where I get to inform you that my next video review on the El Fanboy YouTube will center on the Power Rangers reboot. Uh, 
Um, the written version will go up on the Splash Report. The video version will go up on the El Fanboy YouTube page and at the website itself, elfanboy.com. Um, very excited about that, Power Rangers. Um, all right, moving right along to our next order of business. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time right now, so feel free to have a seat, roll up your sleeves, Get out some whiskey or something, because we got to talk about DC right now. Um, you know, I know this is like one of my uh, favorite little pet projects, basically talking about DC uh, ad nauseum. But uh, I mean, last week a lot came out, so let's let's where do we start? We're going to start first on the fact that a couple weeks ago, if you follow the Splash Report and I, you read a scoop. Uh, or you maybe you saw the video version of it, which is on the Elf Handball YouTube page. <clears throat> um, you you know about the fact that we got the inside dirt on what happened with Matt Reeves and the Batman movie. You know that we told you that it was not about money. It wasn't about anything else when he walked away from those negotiations. But rather, it all had to do with the fact that he wanted creative control. He didn't want to work with Ben Affleck's script, the one that he'd been working on with Jeff Johns and um, Chris Terrio. He wanted to be able to build his Batman movie from the ground up. And we told you guys this, and a lot of sites picked it up and they credited us, so thank you very much. Uh, in that same report, I brought up the question that, you know, how long until we find out about a complete page one rewrite of the Batman? Uh, you know, and he, and here on the podcast in particular, I, I went ahead and called it. I didn't just make it a question. I went ahead and said that that's going to be the next thing we hear, that the film itself is going back to the drawing board and that now with Matt Reeves overseeing things and the fact that he wants to be the one calling the shots, there's no way he's sticking with the established script, even though there was that PR fluff piece from Warner Brothers where shortly after Ben Affleck left after left the director's chair and people were bugging out, some report hit the net that there is a script that Warner Brothers is very happy with. And I was actually surprised to hear like who, who was peddling this nonsense. Uh, it was Justin Kroll over from Variety, who's a good reporter, and Variety's a hell of a source. But I, I, I got in in a, a brief three-way conversation between him and Mark Hughes of Forbes. And, um, you know, Justin was saying that there's going to definitely be that, – that, that there's a script that's already everyone's high on. And Mark Hughes basically said, I, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that, you know, things are in a state of flux. And then there's me there in the middle going, I'm pretty sure Mark's right, but I'm surprised that Justin is saying that they're happy with the script. And lo and behold, here we go. They're rewriting the Batman from the start. So I called it. We spoke about it. It's happening. All right. The Batman's getting rewritten. And who's rewriting it? That actually remains a mystery. Um, you know, I was, I was speaking to Kelvin about this, and he seems to think it's Matt Reeves himself. I don't know. You know, I, I did a little research on Mr. Reeves. And, you know, and he's written a fair amount of things, but nothing that's like, you know, he doesn't have a huge track record, you know. Uh, his main, you know, the, a lot of his credits are with uh, Felicity. You know, he's credited as the creator and he wrote a lot of uh, Felicity, that, that, you know, that TV series. 
Um, but he did write the screenplay for Let Me In, which was the uh, the American remake, you know, of the uh, what's that one called? I, the original Let the Right One In. So you know, when he directed the American version of Let the Right One In, called Let Me In, he wrote the screenplay for that. He worked on that with uh, John Ajvide Lundquist. Or maybe that's the guy who wrote the original, because that's what I'm guessing. Yeah, okay. So anyway, he's credited as the writer on Let Me In. And he's also credited as a co-writer on War for the Planet of the Apes, which comes out later this year. So the guy's got some writing experience. Um, I just don't necessarily know that we have enough to go on here. A, we don't know if he's writing the Batman. But B, if it is him, I don't necessarily know how to feel about that. Um, so that's just sort of, you know, I, I'm trying to find out, you know, I'm trying to figure out who's writing the film, I'm trying to get a definitive answer on who's writing the film. Um, but one interesting thing that's come out of this rewrite news is that regardless of who's rewriting it, since this is a page one drawing board sort of rewrite, that means that Mr. Joe Manganiello no longer has the, the, the job security he likely thought he had. Um, you know, if you guys recall, they revealed Deathstroke in that little video uh, last year where you see, you know, you couldn't see his face, Mr. Manginello, but, can, you know, presumably that was him walking towards the camera and they revealed that he was going to be a villain, probably maybe not the villain, but he was going to definitely be a villain in the Batman and possibly even show up in Justice League um, because Justice League was what is what was filming when they released that clip. You know, the Batman, as we all know, has not, has not gone anywhere near a video camera and is nowhere near ready for that. So the fact that they had a guy walking around in that costume filming that moody little sequence makes people think he may pop up in Justice League. Uh, and as you guys know, as recently as a month ago, there were reports going around with Joe Manganiello speaking so excitedly about his work as Deathstroke and how he's prepping for it and he's working on hand-to-hand combat and swordplay and just getting physically ready for the role um, and you know, reading the, the books and all that sort of stuff, immersing himself. And I feel bad for the guy because... I like Joe Manganiello. My wife, you know, my wife more or less forced me to watch True Blood with her. And uh, I enjoyed it for what it was. And he was a werewolf on that show. And uh, I thought, you know, this guy's pretty good. You know, he's got he's got a good look. He's got some charisma. I saw him in Magic Mike. Uh, he was even, a lot of people, like a little bit of trivia you guys may not realize, is he was in the running to play Superman. When, when, Zack, Snyder, <clears throat> when Zack Snyder was casting Man of Steel, before he settled on Henry Cavill, Joe Manganiello was in the running. He was one of the finalists. And I remember I, I started trying to spend some time getting comfortable with a guy who looks like Mr. Manganiello playing Superman. Because he's not necessarily the archetype I picture for Superman. But then I realized he looks kind of like, like, like he, he could visually make you think about the one from uh, Superman the Animated Series. You know, the, that Bruce Tim square-jawed, really wide-shouldered jock look that, uh, that Superman had there in that series. Um, you know, so I'm like, if they're going for that sort of Superman, I could see Manganiello as that. And I spent some time trying to get comfortable with that idea. And then ultimately the part went to Henry Cavill, who I does to, who I do think fits the more traditional mold better. But, um, 
you know, what's going on with Manganiello now is he may have come very close and once again lost his shot at a DC thing. Because, you know, while he lost Superman to Henry Cavill, now because of the rewrite, he seems to be very not sure about whether or not Deathstroke, and he, or he in particular, will be showing up in the Batman. Uh, he was asked about it on Pittsburgh Today Live. He was there promoting Smurfs, the Lost Village. And they hyped up. They're like, oh, you have another huge movie to talk about, don't you? You're in the next Batman. And all he would say was, um, maybe, we'll see. And he kind of threw his hands up sort of, you know, half-heartedly. Uh, that no longer seems like the guy who was out there a month ago speaking excitedly about all of his prep. He now, you know, he's probably just now waiting like the rest of us. He's waiting for this new script to be completed. He's waiting to see if his character makes the cut. And now it looks like his future as Deathstroke is completely up in the air. Um, so I'm sorry to hear that for you there, Mr. Manginello. Uh, I'm sure one of these days you will get into a DC movie if you're not already uh, making a cameo in Justice League. Um, but yeah, so it looks like Mr. Manginello may be out of the job. We know that Batman's getting rewritten. We don't know who's writing it. And you heard it here first, folks. You know, the Splash Report and I broke that story a few weeks ago about the fact that Reeves wants creative control and that it looked like, you know, all signs are pointing to a rewrite. And there it is. Um, also, while we're talking about DC, interesting stuff going on everywhere. Uh, so shortly after we found out about the rewrite, we also found out about the fact that Aquaman uh, got delayed. It got bumped a couple months from October to December of 2018. Uh, and that's interesting because out of all of the DC projects lately, Aquaman's been the one that's been pretty much the smoothest sailing, if you think about it. You know, uh, it's basically, you know, discounting Man of Steel. Man of Steel went smoothly because that's before we had a DCEU. That's back when Warner Brothers was just working on making a Superman movie that could potentially be a gateway for other things. And ever since, things have been, uh, let's just call them bumpy. You know, you had Batman v Superman, which saw a huge production delay. And, you know, then the big, <laughs> the, the editing room was hijacked by Warner Brothers and we got the, uh, the, the theatrical cut we did, the, the theatrical cut that was reviled by so many. Then you have what happened with Suicide Squad with all the reshoots and once again the editing room being hijacked um, and that went the way it went. Meanwhile, you know, and then you have uh, The Flash, which lost two directors and is now in a, you know, back for, for a page one rewrite. And now we have this shit with the, ba you know, the Batman, where they lost their director, and now they're having a page one rewrite and all that turmoil. In all of this, Aquaman has always seemed like the one area where things just seem to be totally smooth. You know, there's no interns... Uh, leaving Warner Brothers writing angry letters about what's going on with, with Aquaman like they did with Wonder Woman. There's none of this, you know, th there's seemingly no concern about Aquaman. And James Wan seems to be running a nice tight ship. And we thought, okay, this is going to be something to look forward to. And not that, it, you know, not that it won't be, but the fact that it gets delayed sort of comes out of nowhere. 
because um, they've had so much time to prep it. And James Wan has had so much time to get all those ducks in a row for that movie. So to hear about the delay caused some concern. And my immediate response, which I tweeted as soon as the news broke, was that I wonder if the main reason it's been delayed is not necessarily because of controversy or because of uh, there's trouble or turmoil with the project itself, I said, well, maybe this is because DC is going to fast track another movie to come out earlier in the year. Um, and then what happened? Shortly after that initial report about the delay, we started hearing exactly that that Warner Brothers may want to sneak something else in there, um, which makes sense because that's a very long layover between DC movies. Considering they wanted to release two films per year, um, you know, to go from November's Justice League to then waiting 13 months for Aquaman, that's a huge layover. And that's why I was saying maybe there's something that they plan on making that they want to release earlier in 2018. And that's the only reason they delayed Aquaman, so that the, the two films aren't so close to each other and they don't risk cannibalizing one another. And now that, you know, that really seems to be the case. Lots of people are reporting that Warner Brothers seems to have some like secret DC project going on right now that they want to start filming possibly as, as, as soon as this summer. Um... Which could totally happen, by the way. You know, movies movies don't necessarily need forever to be made, especially if there's something that's a little more character-driven, if there's something where there's not that many effects, something that's like Gotham City Bells. Uh, remember, they announced that Gotham City Bells movie directed by David Ayer that's starring Margot Robbie, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to center on uh, Poison Ivy, Catwoman, and um, Harlequin. Um, a film like that, in theory, shouldn't take that long to make. And David Ayer, who, you know, if, if you followed his comments in the past about what he considered his folly with Suicide Squad, was that he sort of made it too big and he would have scaled down the, uh, the closing act and maybe made just the Joker the central villain and whatever. He seems like a guy who would rather tell a smaller, more intimate story now. So... That tells me that he could totally get Gotham City Sirens done within a year. You know, you film for like three or four months, like most films do. So, you, you know, if you start like in June and you wrap up in, let's say, August, no, August, you wrap up in like October, and then that gives you, you know, several months of post, and then you release it in June or July, or even in Suicide Squad's slot. You know, the Suicide Squad came out, I believe, August 7th this year. You could release Gotham City Sirens in August of next year pretty easily. So that is my prediction. That's what I think they're going to do with it. Other people are talking about stuff like The Flash, which I think that's a snowball's chance in hell because The Flash is currently in the rewrite stage and they have no director. Um, Suicide Squad 2, I feel like you couldn't just throw something like that together. The cast is too big, and especially with, with, a, with a star like Will Smith in there, it would be very hard to get the scheduling right. I mean, uh, you know, Joe Carnahan was speaking a few months ago before he ended up leaving Bad Boys 3. He was speaking about how hard it's been just to get Will Smith available because his schedule is so hectic. So I'm pretty sure they couldn't just slap together a Suicide Squad 2 considering Will Smith is always working on a bunch of different things at the same time. They couldn't just do that. Um, 
Then there's other ones like Dark Universe, you know, the like like the Justice League Dark movie. I think that's a very very long shot. Um, I mean, I suppose it's possible. I didn't necessarily see Suicide Squad coming when it did. You know, uh, these Warner Brothers folks who run the DCEU, you know, they, they, they seem to have no problem like digging into these B and C level characters. So maybe they want to do a Dark Universe movie. I personally would doubt it. And another one, which I think is totally unlikely, but will lead me into my next story here, is Green Lantern Corps. Uh, you know, it was announced several months ago that there were already people working on a script, that they were already trying to cast Hal Jordan and whatever, you know, and, and possibly Jon Stewart. Um, so there's talk that maybe that film is further along than we might have thought and that they could sneak in a Green Lantern Corps movie between now and next year. And I that one, I, I, I think it's pretty much impossible because unless you're going to totally gimp the story... You know, unlike Gotham City Sirens, which, as I said, doesn't really need a lot of post-production because there's not going to be a lot of effects and, and, and the spectacle itself is going to be scaled down. Green Lantern Corps demands huge post-production. You know, you're dealing with the cosmos. You're dealing with characters that can fly and, and create things with their rings. You're dealing with alien battles. You're dealing with all this sort of huge larger-than-life stuff. A film like that, you can't just slap together. I mean, you can, but you'd be a fucking idiot if you did. So I've, you know, as much as I tend to question and doubt the uh, the quote unquote brain trust over at Warner Brothers, I, I'd like to give them a little bit of credit here that they wouldn't force a Green Lantern Corps movie out between now and next August because that would be a terrible idea and i just don't see that happening so my money right now is on the announcement of gotham city sirens coming out and landing right around suicide squad's slot in early august of next year um especially when because when that film got the green light and it sort of caught people by surprise the reports that mentioned this film also said that margot robbie had already been working on the script with somebody else because she's also producing it and she she's got more of a behind the scenes role on this so when they green lit it it already had some semblance of a script so and that was several months ago so they might have a final shooting script already and they really could film this this summer into the fall and have it ready for end of next summer. So that's it. That is my official prediction. For those of you keeping track, uh, you know, just as I'm certain that Cyborg will never get made, I'm almost just as certain that we're going to hear about Gotham City Sirens getting made fairly soon, just as I was very, very sure that we were going to hear about a Batman rewrite. All right, people? So you could take some of these predictions to the bank. I wonder if I, I should find a way to start monetizing these predictions. <laughs> but uh, so since we were talking about Green Lantern Corps, there's also this interesting rumor going around about David Goyer. So we know that he's working on the script. He's working on it with Justin Rhodes, and they were working on a film that almost had like a Lethal Weapon vibe to it. I guess it would be more of like a partner movie between Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart. And uh, yeah, that was earlier this year. Um, and now we're hearing the courtesy of Jeff Snyder, who used to work for the rap and has also written for variety. So he's a pretty reliable source. He says that David Goyer may actually try to direct the film. 
that, you know, he's got some experience as a director. And since he is basically, his hands are creatively all over this project because he's working on the script. And I guess he probably came up with the tone for it. Um, You know, he's basically, I guess, making the point that, hey, listen, this thing is my baby anyway. So why not just let me direct it? Um, And to that, I just want to say, not so fast. Okay. Because as I've said before, there's very little Goyer has done that wasn't overseen by someone with the last name Nolan that I really like all that much. Um, if you look at, at some of the stuff that he's done. So, you know, Blade Trinity was pretty fucking lousy, and he directed that. Um, funny enough, he directed my aunt in a film back in 2002. He directed this film called Zigzag that she was in. Uh, I wish she was still alive. I, w- I would ask her what she thought of, uh, of him as a director. But it was a film with uh, John Leguizamo and Wesley Snipes and Oliver Platt. You know, very nice cast. Um, but, uh, yeah, sorry, I just got sidetracked. I totally didn't realize he did Zigzag. Um, he worked with my aunt. Anyway, uh, he also did The Invisible, which was crap, The Unborn, like really a couple episodes of Flash Forward. Uh, he worked on that Da Vinci's Demon series. And, you know, I just, there's nothing in his track record that says, this is the guy. This is the guy who should be directing a Green Lantern movie. Um, I'm sorry. He seems like someone who comes up with great ideas and definitely understands the lore and the, and the comic sensibilities. But I don't think he belongs in, in the director's chair for something of this of this nature. So if that rumor is to be true, it, it, it is to be believed. I really hope it doesn't pan out. And if they do hire him to direct Green Lantern Corps, they do so at their peril because the, I think he's just, he's going to saddle the film with the sort of mediocrity that he's brought to his other projects. I'm sorry, Mr. Goyer, but I just, I hope it's someone else. I really, really do. Um, and now, right, so we can finish up there with the uh, with DC, and we're going to move on. We're going to switch over to the XCU, the X-Men Cinematic Universe, for just a little tiny bit here. We've got some, some news here about Deadpool 2, where the writers are out there talking about basically just kind of giving some lip service to the idea that, listen, we know that everything with Deadpool and the sequels and X-Force seems to be getting very overhyped and overblown right now. But rest assured that, you know, Deadpool 2 is going to be a Deadpool movie. It's not going to be just some sort of launch pad for X-Force. That not only are they trying to get to X-Force, but they're also trying to get to just a proper Deadpool 3. So, you know, people were worried about that, that like, you know, what made the first Deadpool so special was the fact that it put all the emphasis on Wade Wilson and put all the emphasis on Deadpool. It really allowed Ryan Reynolds to shine in a role that he was pretty much born to play. And, you know, people were worried now that like, Jesus, you know, now all the all this emphasis on cable, all this emphasis on setting up X-Force, you know, are we going to lose our, our the, the center of what made that film so special? But here's what writer Rhett Reese told Cinema Blend. Um, he says it's 
uh, with regard to what they're working on with Deadpool 2 and and, uh, Deadpool 3, he says, it's working in an expansive way towards X-Force, which will really be more of an ensemble. But then that will allow us to do both an X-Force movie and a Deadpool 3, which actually contracts back down. So I think we'll be able to take two paths. One is where we're launching something bigger, but then another where we're contracting and staying personal and small. So I think it's the best of bo- of all worlds, really. Um, so interesting. Interesting choice of words, too, since we know in the comics, uh, Deadpool, Wade Wilson, he's a fan of all the worlds, if you know what I mean. Um Then you had Reese go on there about the world building and all that sort of stuff. He says, our first goal is to tell a Deadpool story in an emotional, fun, satisfying way. And then the fact that we're setting up something in the future, it's happening, but you're not going to see that mustache twirling villain who's going, ha, 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 it's all coming into place. You're just not going to see that because that's not our game. Deadpool is a character piece. Deadpool is the leader of this very dysfunctional family. There are new people coming into that family, and there are old people that you've fallen in love with, with the conflict between Deadpool and, for example, Colossus and NTW. So yeah, it's a delicate balance, but primarily keeping a Deadpool movie. Movie. So, you know, it, it, it's they are coming to an interesting place here. And it's going to be interesting. To, it's going to be interesting to see how they balance all that out. You know, if you guys recall, Iron Man 2, one of the reasons that it's so maligned, one of the reasons that it put John Favreau off from making more Marvel movies was the fact that, you know, the first movie was great and character driven and felt like a breath of fresh air. And then the second film got way too ambitious and was more about setting up a team-up movie than it was about Tony Stark. And people are worried that, you know, Deadpool 2 is going to do that. And I, you know, I, I totally, I understand those fears. I understand those fears and I guess I, I wish them well. You know, we know that, that Reese and Wernick and Reynolds have been working on this sequel script for a very, you know, for like over, you know, like a year now. And we know that they recently brought in Drew Goddard to kind of help with uh, with the script. So I hope they come up with something that balances things correctly, that keeps the emphasis on Wade Wilson and lets him be the real center of the movie, but then just sort of plants seeds for what's to come. Um, and it probably helps that the sort of self-mocking, self-satirizing um, tone that the film has, they can sort of openly address the fact that this sequel is getting a little bit bloated. So, you know, th- that, that works in their favor. They can call attention to it, just like the folks who made uh, 22 Jump Street were able to call attention to the fact that, like, sequels are kind of ridiculous and they always got to retread the same stuff and get bigger and better and, you know, sort of mocked itself. You know, Deadpool can sort of do the same thing. So... That works in their favor. I just hope that they're able to stick to it, create that balance, and keep this a Deadpool movie. Um, Also, coming out last week, there was a lot of news last week. So, like, pretty much the same day that Aquaman got bumped and we heard that maybe Gotham City Sirens or, you know, some other DC movie was going to pop up next year, uh, we got news that the uh, Sony was going to make Venom that they've tapped Alex Kurtzman to direct Venom, a spinoff of the, of the main Spider-Man franchise. Now, this sort of stuff, you know, it's interesting to me. 
because we know that Sony has made a deal with Marvel Studios so they can basically share Spider-Man. And Marvel as a whole seems to be the one calling all the shots, like with Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, they're designing him, they're building up his world, but Sony still technically owns him. With Venom now, I just wonder where the balance of power shall lie. Because Alex Kurtzman, who Sony has hired to direct it, he's from the previous Brain Trust. He's from the, you know, he he wrote The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, or it might just be part two. I, I, I thought he worked on both. It's possible he worked on only the sequel. But, you know, the sequel is the whole reason that Sony doesn't have Spider-Man anymore. You know, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and I'm not blaming Mr. Kurtzman for this, but... Kurtzman, you know, he's he made that film. So it's interesting to me that they want to make a Venom movie with him, considering they've more or less backed out on what they were working on with the whole Spider-Man expanded universe. If you'll recall, before Spider-Man got introduced into the MCU, the talk was that the, the Amazing Spider-Man series starring Andrew Garfield was going to go and expand. It was going to be like its own MCU just based around Spider-Man and his supporting players. You know, there was going to be spin-offs and sequels and you know the a villain, you know the the, the Sinister 6 movie. You know, they were going to go really really big. And the Amazing Spider-Man 2 was supposed to be the first step in that in that plan. Um, so, you know, I have nothing against Kurtzman. I've actually mentioned in the past that, you know, he comes from that same collective of, of artists who've done a lot of really good work. It, it, that includes, uh, J.J. Abrams and Roberto Orchi and Drew Goddard and Matt Reeves, who's now doing the Batman. So I have faith in what Kurtzman can do, you know, especially because he worked on, uh, the Star Trek reboot that I liked so much, but... I just find it interesting and curious that Sony would turn to someone from an abandoned, you know, film franchise to essentially create that franchise, you know, create a spinoff of it that's now being run by Marvel. It just it all gets very confusing. Um, so I guess we'll 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 see on the surface the idea of Kurtzman making a Venom movie. I don't have any inherent issues with. Uh, he's making his his feature direct directorial debut with the Mummy, and all we've really seen is uh, a trailer or two there. And what I've seen of the Mummy looks really good, but the film hasn't come out yet, so I really can't judge Mr. Kurtzman as a director. But you know, on the surface, him handling Venom, I'm okay with. I'm neutral on. I just I'm really curious how they're going to run it creatively, and will this Venom also be part of the MCU continuity? And, you know, Venom is a very iconic villain. People love him. People have wanted to see him done right for a very long time. So what happens now if he if his spinoff does really well and people love this take on Venom, you know, does will Marvel Studios proper have access to him as well? So they could maybe bring him in to... bring him in on the fun a little bit? Yeah, I just... I'm very curious, so I guess I'm going to be keeping an eye on that story, but that's just one of many things that happened late last week uh, with regard to new films being announced. Um, 
And before we get to the biggest thing that was announced last week, uh, I want to touch on two other things. One is just a quick acknowledgement. I want to just send my, my thoughts and prayers and well wishes. Uh, the old wrestling fan in me is concerned about someone right now. Uh, if you guys ever watched you know, the, the WWF in its heyday, uh, you know about good old JR, Jim Ross. His wife just got into a terrible accident while riding her Vespa. And uh, Ross went on Twitter to say that, you know, uh, my wife Jan, my little angel, was hit while riding her Vespa and has multiple skull fractures. She's in surgery now. We need a miracle. Um, and that, you know, that happened in the middle of the night. So just I want to send thoughts and positive energy towards Mr. Ross and, and Jan. Uh, may she have a speedy recovery and, and may the miracle, whatever it is that they need, may they get that because, uh, that's, that's truly heartbreaking to hear. And, uh, you know, good old JR will always have a special place in my heart. You know, his, his voice is the backing for a lot of my favorite memories of being a fanboy of wrestling in the, uh, in the late nineties. And, um, anyway, so I said what I had to say there. Uh, you know, Godspeed, uh, good luck, Jan Ross. Um, so last week there was also the fact that Iron Fist hit Netflix, uh, and the reviews were pretty horrendous. Um, and I wanted to see what the, you know, what the negative hype was about. So I did something I don't normally do. I watched some TV. You hear that, Mr. Varola? I sat down and watched some fucking TV. Because I, I, I don't watch much, as you guys know. I'm more of a movie guy myself. And lately, whenever I have a free moment, I'm off in Hyrule uh, beating bow goblins as, as Link from Legend of Zelda. But I, uh, I purposely, so that I can talk about this on this week's show, sat down and had a little mini binge of Iron Fist. Actually, this morning. Just to, just to show you how dedicated I am to you guys. I took my daughter to school, and I sat down for three hours, and I watched the first three episodes of Iron Fist. Um, I got to say, right off the bat, in terms of all the, uh, the whitewashing controversy, I continue to see, I, I continue to feel that it's a ridiculous fight, that I don't know why people are making a big deal about this. It seems like it's definitely part of the mythology that he has to be a white guy. It's, a, it's part of his whole thing. A huge part of the, of the storytelling dynamic here is that he's not someone you would ever expect to have spent all this time studying with monks in the Himalayas and coming back a, a martial arts master and having all of this mysticism and, and yada, yada, yada. So to me, it's like, you know, it very much is intrinsic to the character that he be a white guy. Uh, and he's always been a white guy in the comics. So I just, the, in terms of the controversy, I think it's, I still just think it's ridiculous. Um, and I did ask the question out there that, you know, someone who, who doesn't think it's ridiculous, someone who's fighting for the other side, somebody explained to me what the issue is. And the best answer I got still to me was not that interesting. You know, it was no offense to the person who wrote it, but it was on a YouTube comment on my Iron Fist video. They said something basically just saying like, you know, we wanted this. We wanted them to change him to into an Asian hero. This would have been a great opportunity. That's what it boiled down to. And I'm like, okay, fine. I can understand that. That is something you wanted. But 
that means that all it really is, is a missed opportunity. All right. This is not an outrage. It's a missed opportunity. Sure. They could have conceivably changed his, 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 or, you know, his uh, orientation, but instead they didn't, they just left it the way it is in the comics and they didn't want to alter the mythology too much. And they stuck with that. All right. Yes, they could have done it. I understand it would have made some of you out there very happy. I respect that. I hear you there, but this at worst is a missed opportunity. It's not a reason to be all pissed off and out there threatening boycotts and throwing snarky hashtags and, 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 littering your reviews with this negative filter because you hate it because of what it did in terms of race. I just, you know, I have no patience. I have no place in my heart for that, for that kind of stuff. I've been pretty vocal. I've written at length in the past about the idea of critics bringing certain unfair biases to their reviews that, you you know, they, they watch something already pissed off or, or they watch something ready to base it on how they would have done it instead of just basing it on what it is and what it's trying to do and what, you know, they they base it on this other personal sort of shit. And to me, a review shouldn't be that. So if you're going to bring all this extra baggage and, well, they should have done this and this was a missed opportunity, so now I'm going to rake them over the coals for it, then don't call yourself a critic, all right? You're, you're, You're not a critic, because you're not really critiquing what is there. You're critiquing something in your head. So get your head examined and go write a little personal blog about it. But don't tell me this is your review of the material. Okay? That's bullshit. So now let's talk about the material. Uh, based on the first three episodes, uh, I'm not that impressed. Um, and it's a shame because I'm very intrigued by the premise of the show. Uh, I know nothing about Iron Fist, by the way. You know, I, I've seen plenty of pictures and I have a cursory knowledge of the mythology because I've been writing about this stuff for the last couple of years. And since that's one of the stories that's quote unquote on my beat, you know, I know just about, you know, who's in the show. I know roughly that his name is Danny Rand and I know the, the tiniest little bullet points of his origin. But aside from that, I really have no connection to this character. So I'm watching the series, and it really is a shame because I find his origin very intriguing. The central storyline to me is very intriguing. I want to know more about it. I want, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked in terms of that. But it gets betrayed by the fact that the storytelling is pretty lousy. Some of the acting is horrendous. The choreography is like clunky and flimsy. When you're dealing with characters that are supposedly martial arts masters, it should look sharp and amazing. And instead, the choreography looks lazy and clunky. There's times where you could tell a kick missed someone's face by like 17 feet, but the guy still falls. Like It looks like amateur hour. The, the choreography, I'm like, what the fuck is this? What kind of drop-off is this in terms of hand-to-hand combat from what we had in Daredevil Season 1 to this? So whoever's choreographing this, Jesus Christ, try harder. Um, and just in general, the, the, story te- the, the visual storytelling is really bland. To me, w- w- with a story that is so filled with mystery, that is so filled with this mysticism and all this sort of like magical elements and, and it's supposed to be like supernatural and crazy, 
it's visually just looks like any old TV show. There's no mood, there's no ambiance, there's no artistic vision put into the visuals on this show. It looks like a show I just watch on uh, on USA. It looks like an episode of White Collar. It's visually flat. And that's unfortunate because, you know, the other Daredevil, the other Marvel Netflix series, they all have like a distinct sort of feel. You know, Daredevil had a very distinct vibe, the way it was shot. It has a very moody, dark, brooding vibe. You know, it feels like Matt Murdock's life. You know, the, the the way it shot, it felt like a Frank Miller book brought to life. You know, Jessica Jones has that has its own vibe too, with this very sort of film noir spy story, you know, procedural sort of thing, where you know it, it felt it had its own little rat-a-tat energy, where you're you're following the film noir detective uh, as she figures out how to you know fix the the, the central mystery. Um, Luke Cage had its own sort of feel too. It really took the Harlem stuff to heart and it had the soulful. Uh, jazzy soundtrack and it has its own sort of percolating energy beneath it and the way it shot lots of golden hues and lots of things that really feel like Luke Cage looked like its own thing. Iron Fist doesn't look like anything which is strange because this character has the most reason for things to look stylized. Um, It just you know it's such a missed opportunity. It really is just visually totally flat. Um and I'm just I'm looking over my notes here because I did jot a couple things down as I was watching it. Like, yeah, oh, it's funny that th- this isn't you know a huge deal, but the opening credits are so cool and they're very Daredevil like. If you think about it, with the with the whole thing with like you know in Daredevil you see like the blood graphics and it looks like he's you know, a man is being made from blood and it's very like liquidy, taking a solid form. And Iron Fist also kind of has opening credits if you see like a Kung Fu guy, also a very like liquidy sort of silhouette form. And I'm like, you know, it, it, I, I think it's a missed opportunity that all four of these Defender series didn't adopt that, you know, because like it, it makes it weird that Daredevil and Iron Fist did, but the two in between didn't really have that style. So I kind of wish they would have gone for a more unified thing or just given Iron Fist his own thing. So each opening credits, you know, belies its own artistic vision and its own take on the character. But I guess that goes back to what I said before, that Iron Fist seems to have no idea what it wants to be from a visual standpoint. It copies the Daredevil look and feel in terms of the opening credits, but it has no real identity. It has no identity. Um, and you've got, you just TV characters making dumb decisions. You know, I hate that. I hate when characters just make dumb decisions for the sake of elongating the story. And I hate it when characters just, everything they do is illogical and stupid. And it seems to betray what they're telling us about the character. You know, I hate it in the first episode where um, where Danny. Actually, I don't know. I don't, maybe I shouldn't get into spoilers. I just realized because the the series did just uh, did, you know did just come out. But I don't know. Let me see if I could bring this up without getting into spoilers. Uh, Danny tells someone that their brother was tried to kill them, tried to kill him, and this person who we're meant to believe is a good person, just kind of totally glosses over that. But meanwhile, 
we find out as the series wears on, at least where I'm at, three episodes in, this character is supposed to be, in theory, a good character at heart. Maybe, like, like I said, maybe if you guys have seen the whole thing, maybe I'm totally wrong on this. But the character he tells this to is supposed to be a good person. And there's supposed to be someone who possibly believes that Danny is who he says he is. And for some reason, totally just glosses over the fact that their brother tried to kill him. And when this person asks Danny, hey, well, how do you know that? Instead of just saying, well, because I asked the person who was trying to kill me who sent them and they told me it's your brother. He didn't say that. He gave some sort of vague thing, which kind of gives this other character a reason to be skeptical of him. Why would Danny Rand not just say, oh, you want to know how I know? Because they told me. Instead, he did the TV thing, and he kind of just gave like a vague thing that, gi- that gives the other character an out to not really believe the story. It's just bad writing. Bad writing, inconsistent, inconsistent choices by the characters, uh, it's, it's very frustrating. You know, I, I hear that the series gets better as the season wears on. So I'm going to finish this off, hopefully by the end of the week. Uh, if Legend of Zelda doesn't completely, uh, take over my life as it has been. Um, and it, like I said, it's just very, um, it's very, un- it's, it's disappointing because the central premise I find cool. And I'm very intrigued about the character of Iron Fist, about the character of Danny Rand, Um, but to me, it just seems like everyone who's been brought in to tell this story doesn't really know what the fuck they're doing. And Danny Rand, I'm sorry, they have Finn Jones who plays him. I know I, I've, I've, uh, you know, given him a lot of props these last couple weeks for, for handling all of this nonsense controversy as well as he has. But, you know, some guys look good doing martial arts and they look badass and, 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 and proficient at what they do. And some guys just don't, they're not cut out to be action stars. And I get the sense that that's Finn Jones. And I hate to say that because, you know, he seems to be a talented actor and he's got a good look. He has like a young DiCaprio thing going for him. But every time he gets physical, it just looks awkward. It doesn't look impressive. It doesn't give any of those like adrenaline bursts of like, yeah, go get him. It just looks like some just little dude just kind of flailing around and all the stunt actors around him are throwing themselves around to make him look cool, but he doesn't actually look cool. So that's just something I'm sort of keeping an eye out. Maybe as the, as the season wears on, um, he will look better, but right now he just doesn't seem like someone who I would, I would be particularly fearful of. And he doesn't seem like a fierce warrior at all. And when I, when I, what little I know of Iron Fist, all the pictures depict him as this intense brolic figure who's like roaring and doing a dragon kick. And he looks fierce and crazy like a ninja. And Danny Rand, you know, Finn Jones does not convey that sort of edge at all. So that's sort of my final thing on Iron Fist for now. I'll try to give you guys a full review um, on next week's show. And if I do complete the series, I'll also write just a full written review on lfanboy.com. But now, uh, we're going to close things out today with The Matrix. That was the biggest story from last week that apparently Warner Brothers is getting ready to relaunch The Matrix. Um, 
And first, I have to just go ahead and just as I did on Twitter, I need to give a, a shout out to Kelvin. Kelvin Chavez announced this almost two years ago at the start at at uh, in February of 2015, I guess it was. He wrote a story about the fact that The Matrix is getting rebooted. Um, that Warner Brothers is basically in the beginning stages of figuring out how they want to do it, but they definitely want to make like a new trilogy at the very least. So good on you, Kelvin. What you reported two years ago now seems to be coming to fruition. Um, and mind you, fuck those people we used to work for, because just as I said earlier, not only did they take Kelvin's name off all his old posts, you know, he was the founder of that goddamn site. Now they've deleted all of his posts. So I imagine it's only a matter of time before my posts are deleted. So they deleted the founder's posts. So while I was trying to find that article in order to give him credit, I stumbled upon the fact that I can't find that article anymore. So I had to source someone else. I had to source IGN. And hey, that I don't mind doing because now technically I work with them. And hey, sounds good. But can you believe that shit? They deleted all of Kelvin's old scoops. All Everything he's ever posted, it no longer has... It's just gone. You can't find it anymore. So fuck those fucking people. Now, with The Matrix... Um, you know, no one, no one knows who's directing it yet. It doesn't even sound like they necessarily have a director lined up yet. What they do have is Zach Penn, who's uh, been hired to write the treatment for the film. Zach Penn has uh, has an interesting past because he's you know he's written one movie that's in my one of my favorites ever, but in general hasn't necessarily done much of any good outside of that. I hate to say that, but, um, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to read you some of his credits as we go here. Okay. He did last action hero back in 93 with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which was, you know, it was cute. It was all right, but nothing, you know, nothing crazy. He did behind enemy lines, which was okay, but he did X-Men two. That's the one that I'm like, Oh dude, X two. That's amazing. Um, so he did X2, which is one of my favorites, but then he also has written on Elektra, he's written on X-Men The Last Stand, you know, and then, yeah, and then he sort of redeemed himself, you know, he, he, he's, he's credited as coming up with some of the story for the first Avengers, and he's also uh, credited on the screenplay for the Edward Norton The Incredible Hulk, and I know that a lot of people don't really like that movie. Uh, I actually will always defend The Incredible Hulk. I did enjoy that one. Um, I didn't think it was a classic in any you know stretch of the imagination, but I'll never understand why people were so hard on The Incredible Hulk. Uh, I thought that was a pretty damn good movie. But so you know, that, uh, he's a mixed bag. Mr. Penn is a mixed bag. You know, when you got Electra, but you also have X Two, but you also have The Last Stand. You know, it, it, it makes it so no one really knows what to expect from you. But Zach Penn is writing The Matrix, uh, and he took to, to Twitter to basically clarify, because when the initial report came out from, I believe, The Hollywood Reporter, they said that, you know, uh, Warner Brothers wanted to reboot it, 
and people went nuts thinking about, oh my God, are they going to act like the other films didn't happen? You know, this should be a sequel or a spinoff or a prequel. It shouldn't be a reboot. And people lost their fucking minds about this. So he went and said, all I can say at this point is no one could or should reboot The Matrix. People who know Animatrix and the comics understand. Can't comment yet except to say the words reboot and remake were from an article. Let's stop responding to inaccurate news. So... That's interesting. Good, you know, good, good for him to come out and clarify that because people were losing their shit over this phrase, uh, the reboot idea. Um, and you know, right now the, 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 one of the going rumors is that it might be a prequel that centers on a young Morpheus. Morpheus was the character played by Mr. Lawrence Fishburne. Um, so, yeah, that, that's one of the going rumors right now, that it's not going to be a reboot that ignores the originals, but rather it's going to tell another story or a side story or a prequel. It's going to approach the original story from a different sort of perspective and either give us some history or maybe jump forward into the future and tell us about the continuation of what we saw. So it's not going to be a reboot, folks. Um and just as I said in my piece on IGN, I think this could be great. Because um, the Matrix, you know, the premise for the Matrix has so much untapped potential. And for me, that first film was really special. That first film had so much going for it. And for me, those sequels totally failed to live up to that potential. And they were flat and uninspiring and they they ended what could have been a great series on a sort of down note. It was just not, it was not creatively interesting for me. Um, and when you and, and when you think about what the Matrix is about, and when you think about the fact that it can be the type of the the, the type of thoughtful science fiction that speaks to your mind and your heart. And makes your eyes bug out because the physics of it could make for great action sequences. You realize that this could be something that's truly, truly special and that ha it has a lot of legs on it. There's a lot of different ways you can go with The Matrix. Especially when you consider how timely it is. When you consider the fact that, you know, what was one of the central ideas in the first film? That essentially Neo finds out that we're all slaves, that life is not what we think it is. We're actually all slaves who are working for some faceless entity up top. And we're, we're giving our lives, our souls, our energy. We're really just batteries for some other nefarious means that we work, you know, we basically, we're working ourselves to death and we're never actually living and to me, I mean, that shit hits, that, that hits a nerve, you know, because we're all slaves, you know, and the irony of it all is we enslave ourselves. I'm talking about real life right now. We enslave ourselves willingly. You know, life is too painful. It's too lonely. It's too, it's too mundane. So we have to fill the noise. We, we fill it with, with podcasts. We fill it with video games. We fill it with binge watching shows. We, we work ourselves to the bone to put money in the pockets of faceless figures. Our, our purpose is slowly becoming to simply feed the machine. That, that, that's, that's slowly becoming humanity's purpose, just to feed the machine. Think about it. You work, you spend it all, all the money that you make working, you spend it all on temporary entertainments, then you repeat that, and then you die. 
So how are we not already in the matrix? How are we not already in it, folks? This is the matrix. A sci-fi film with those kinds of philosophical roots can be fascinating across the board. So for me, the idea of taking that great premise that has something to say about life and times and maybe disconnecting from our smartphones and maybe trying to find out a, a better way to live that isn't just us plugged in giving our souls away to something else. You know, I think that could be phenomenal, especially if you can find storytellers who, who don't hit the allegories too hard. You know, have it in there, work these themes into that so that if people want to walk away and, and meditate on that and think about that, they can do so. Or if they would just want to focus on the, on the bullet time, on the slow-mo, on the flying, on all the other stuff, they can focus on that. To me, the central premise of The Matrix is brilliant. And the fact that it just wound up within three films and the whole thing from start to finish went from 1999 to 2003, and we've never since had sequels or prequels or side stories or an attempt to expand upon that great first movie was always a missed opportunity. And hearing that they're going to continue it now, I'm like, you know what? That makes a lot of fucking sense. So for those of you guys freaking out, um, you know, it's not going to be a reboot. They're going to continue as if those films happened. We're going to tell another story that goes around that in some way. And in my eyes, there is so much potential, so much storytelling depth and potential in the Matrix mythology that to me, the idea that they're going to make more, this is nothing but good news. You should not be worried about this. You know, at least not until we hear what the premise is going to be and who's directing it. Then, you know, based on how that goes, we could find something out. But the fact that they're going to continue it shouldn't worry you. The guy they've hired, Zach Penn, shouldn't really worry you because he's made some great stuff and he's made some subpar stuff. But he's someone who we know is capable of the great stuff. Um, so based on what we have now, I would say we should be very hyped for the idea of the matrix continuing. Um, and I'm just, you know, I, 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 that's my final takeaway on that. Um, as for what I'm watching, uh, yeah, I want to just leave you guys with just, uh, some, a brief take on, on all the different things that I'm currently ingesting so that, uh, you know, you could take these as recommendations. You could let me know if you disagree with my takes on them. And you can suggest things to me, like, uh, you know, it's been suggested that I see This Is Us, and uh, that is on the list. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't tend to have a lot of time for TV shows, but This Is Us is definitely on the list, especially because people have been hounding my wife about watching it, too. So now I'm hearing about it from her. So the fact that she wants to do it means, okay, fine. You know, because she and I like to bounce from one show to another whenever a season ends. So I have a feeling our next gap will be filled by This Is Us. But in terms of what I'm watching now, um, it's pretty cool. I, I recently got Showtime and Cinemax, and it's allowing me to catch up on some series that I had to let go of a couple years ago. So they're, they're, they're kind of worked in here. The main thing I'm watching is from Showtime. It's Homeland, the current season of Homeland. I think it's fucking phenomenal. Uh, I'm not fully caught up yet. I'm one episode behind. So whatever happened this past Sunday, I have not yet seen. So don't anyone spoil that shit for me. 
But this current season of Homeland, I think it's great. I love that it's shot here in New York, right in my backyard. I love seeing local actors that I know and have worked with, like my buddy Ryan Shibley. He actually plays Andrew Keene and all those flashbacks and pictures of uh, President-elect Keene's son. Uh, her son, Andrew Keene, is that, that's my friend Ryan Shibley. And in general, I, I keep seeing like, oh, there's JT. Oh, there's Peter. You know, I'm seeing all kinds of familiar faces. So that's always kind of fun when, whenever something's shot legitimately in New York, because I always see people I know. But even aside from that, which is just trivia and nonsense, um, I think Homeland is great this season. I'm loving the plot line. It's, uh, I, if, you, if you're someone who dropped off after Brody was killed, I would definitely suggest you get back into Homeland because the series has found its groove. I remember feeling like the season after Brody died was kind of like, eh, but then they bounced back and they haven't looked back yet. So Homeland, check it out. Also watching Masters of Sex on Showtime. I used to love that show. Um... But then I just, I, I stopped being able to watch it. Now that I've got Showtime back, I'm picking up. I'm way behind on that. Uh, I know that you know, they, they've had a third and a fourth season. I'm only in the middle of the third season of Masters of Sex. So don't anyone spoil that for me. But I definitely recommend it. Uh, very well acted, very well written, very thoughtful, very deep story. It's not just like a sex show. Like, not at all, really. It's, it's very psychological. Sebi, you have to wait. Daddy's talking about Masters of Sex. Can you? I'll get you chocolate milk in a minute. I'm almost done. Okay. Thank you, Seb. Um, yeah. Aside from Masters of Sex, I'm also I I'm trying to leave. I'm trying to leave. Finally, trying to finish Luke Cage. Um, I think I'm on episode ten or eleven of that. Uh, I don't have a huge opinion on Luke Cage. I think it's okay. There's elements of it I really like, but in general, for some reason, it's not really firing on all cylinders for me. It's not really working up my fanboy mojo all that much. I think I'm just getting impatient. I want to get to the Defenders already so that I could see all these characters together. And I, I think Luke Cage is probably just a little too heavy on the filler for me right now. Also watching The Walking Dead which I have a total love-hate relationship with. For me, The Walking Dead, like there are moments that I think I'm really glad I'm watching this. And then there are moments where I'm like, why the hell am I still watching this? So I'm kind of like, it's, it's, it's a love-hate thing with The Walking Dead. And I'm also watching Bates Motel. The wife and I love Bates Motel. I think this season's going really well so far. Um, can't wait to see how that goes. Uh, with the finale, I know Rihanna's coming in. I think the, there was an episode last night. We haven't seen it yet. But um, yeah, so th that's what I'm watching. What I'm listening to is a steady diet of the Bill Burr Monday Morning Podcast, WTF with Mark Marin, um, and Case File. Uh, I've mentioned before, Case File is a great, great podcast. Uh, it's a true crime podcast from Australia. You hear that, Dan Bali? Australia. Uh, I, and um, if you guys are into true crime, Case File is as good as it gets. So those are my three podcasts, you know, Bill Burr, WTF, and Case File. What I'm watching is, you know, Bates, Walking Dead, Masters of Sex, Homeland, Luke Cage, and I just started Iron Fist with This Is Us being on the horizon. What are you guys watching out there? What should I add to my list? What uh, of the things that I'm watching 
what do you have an opinion on? Uh, I'd love to know what you guys think of, uh, of the way I'm passing my time, aside from Legends, uh, Legend of Zelda. Um, and that's it. That is our show for the day, uh, for this week. So the question of the week, Will, is it, it pertains to the Matrix. Uh, it's basically, I just want to know from my listeners, now that you know that it's not a reboot, now that you know that it's connected to the original film series, and now that you know that you know, I feel personally, I think we should be hyped, I want to know, are you guys hyped? What do you think of the fact that The Matrix is coming back? Are you all in? Are you on the fence? Do you think that they told already the only story they could really tell there? Or do you think there's more? So just in general, I want to know what everyone's excitement level is for the matrix. All right. Let me know. Uh, please, when you tweet that, do it hashtag L fanboy. It makes it easier for me to pull up all the answers for next week's seventh episode. And uh, just stay tuned to lfanboy.com. I, I have some updates on on ways that I'm souping things up and, and adding to the production value of, of the podcast and everything. And I'm going to be updating the Patreon page hopefully soon and launching that. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to answer my questions, to subscribe, to like, to tell your friends. And please, I, you know, keep the reviews coming in. The more five-star reviews I get, the bigger this thing grows, the bigger iTunes gets at uh, suggesting it to other people. And that's it, everyone. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll see you all next week. Adios.